as our other campuses and venues join us for our time in the Word, won't you all bow with me and let's ask God's blessing on this time. Father, uh, what a rich time of worship we've had here uh, this morning, and I trusted our other campuses and venues as we've uh, focused our hearts and focused our minds upon you, and Lord, through faith, believe the promises and all the truths that you've given us. And so, Lord, we want to talk about that here from your word. We want to talk about what faith is and some of the implications of them, and certainly, Lord, how it affects our lives Monday through Saturday in this fallen world of ours. So, God, give us wisdom and insight as we turn to your word now. May your spirit, God, truly illumine our minds and hearts to understand rightly what you have revealed to us. And our commitment back, God, is to trust you and to give you praise for all you say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you know, I'm, I'm an unashamed car enthusiast. I, I just like cars. I, I don't know why. I, I, my dad was a lawyer all of his life. He read books. He didn't have an athletic bone in his body, and he could barely wash his car. But from the time that I was a little guy, I got into engines and mini bikes and motorcycles. And by the time I was about 15 and a half years old, I had my first car six months before I could even drive a car. I, I had one. It was a 1965 Dodge Cornet 440, for those of you who care, a little 361 V8 under the hood. And, and I loved to open up the hood when I got my car and, and figure out how it worked. I've always been curious about things like that. Now, back then, if you lifted up the hood of your car and you looked underneath it, it was not too hard to figure out how this thing worked. You had an engine that provided the power and then the transmission uh, just behind the engine, and then you had a, a long drivetrain and then a thing called a differential that transferred the power to the wheels, and that was just about it. Uh, cars back then were, were very, very simple. Uh, today, I, I drive a 2015 Mustang, GT with the performance package, for those of you who care. And, uh, and it's a, a, don't clap at that, but it's a, it's a much more powerful car. And, and it's a much more complicated car. If you were to open up the hood of the car that I'm driving right now, it would look vastly different than my first Dodge. They've added a lot of electrical components and air conditioning and air intake and vacuums. I mean, all these things that are in modern day cars. But here's my point is that if you were to look closely, you'd identify the, the same engine or there's the fact that there is an engine. Uh, there's a, a transmission. Uh, there's a, a drivetrain. And then there's a, a differential on my car. So the very same simple components make up my current car as the one that I had, uh, what, 40 some odd years ago when I first started to drive. And, and here's my point is that I think our lives are similar to that. I think a lot of us in our Christian faith start off very basic. We have an engine, a transmission, a drivetrain, and a differential. We have the, the basic core components of our spiritual life. But tell me if this isn't true. As we go along, life gets more complex, doesn't it? Things get more complicated, and we add a lot of things to our lives and our faith and the world around us. In fact, I never thought that I'd live in as complex of a world as you and I live in right now. And so though the car looks very different than maybe how we originally started, here's what we're trying to do in this series that we started last week. We're trying to get simple once again. But we're trying to get back to the 65 Dodge and just identify the engine and the transmission and the drivetrain and the differential. And let's look at the key components of our faith and what it really takes to build a strong, vibrant spiritual life. 
Uh, the Bible is our guide in this series, as it is for everything we do here. We're taking a look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, where Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, lists eight things that we are to build our spiritual house with. We set up the series last week noting that it tells us to make every effort to add to our faith one upon the other these things that go into a strong spiritual life. And this week we're taking a look at the very first one, and I'm going to call it the engine of our spiritual life because it really is the most basic fundamental aspect of our spiritual lives. And Peter says it this way. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement to your faith your faith. And the next week, he's going to say, and to your faith, virtue. And then virtue to knowledge and knowledge of self-control and on and on. He's going to list all these things. But isn't it interesting that he starts with probably what is the most core, simple aspect to our spiritual lives? Think about it with me. The fact that we trust God, the fact that we have faith, he says that's the starting point of your spiritual life, the starting point of your, your spiritual tower, if you will, that you're trying to make this side of heaven. Now, the question I want you and I to wrestle with before we go to the communion table in just a, a little bit is this, and, and it's going to sound like such a simple question, but I'm telling you, I don't think a lot of Christians know the, the, the more complex answer to this, and that is what do you think exactly the Bible means, and what does Peter here mean by faith. What does he mean by faith? I mean, our world and culture today uses the word faith all the time. Have you noticed that? It's like a badge of honor to say today, I'm a man or woman of faith. Do you have faith? I have faith. I'm a person of faith. You got to have faith. I hear people use that word and say that word all the time. It's common in our 21st century American culture. So when Peter says that you and I need to begin with faith as the bottom line activity in building a strong spiritual house. What does he mean by this? Does he mean the same thing as our culture does? Or is there more to this activity of faith than maybe our culture sees? You and I need to answer those questions today. And so here's what I'm going to start with. This is our main point today. And as I say quite often, if you don't hear anything else, just latch onto this one because this is the engine of it all. And that is that biblical faith, I'm telling you, involves the right person, we'll define that in a minute, trusting in the right object. We'll define that in a minute as well. If you want to understand the, the rudimentary nature of faith and what it really entails when you get right down to it, this is it. The Bible is going to tell us today that if you want to have a true biblical faith, it involves the right person, a humble, trusting, submitted, repentant person, trusting in the right object. And now, to best understand this, I want us to analyze faith on two levels that'll help you get to this definition here. First, I want us to analyze what faith is in general before we even bring God into the equation. Just what do we mean by faith? And then I want to analyze what it means when we say we have faith in God according to the Bible. So in general, think about this with me. I would submit this is what we all believe faith is. Faith simply involves a person, you and me, looking to someone or something and then trusting, resting, or believing in it. 
I'm telling you, though you've never analyzed it maybe, that's really what you mean when you use the word faith. It's what your neighbor means, it's what the professor at ASU means, it's what the celebrity means, it's what the politician means. When they say I'm a man or woman of faith, they mean they're looking to someone or something and they're trusting in it, they're resting in it, they're believing in it. And what you need to know is that the Bible affirms this. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, which theologians call the hall of faith, because this whole chapter is about faith, look at how verse 1 starts. Without even bringing God into the equation yet, it says this. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. What a great philosophical definition of faith that the Bible gives us. Uh, That word sure here, translated substance or assurance in some of your translations, literally means to take something that at first glance might seem iffy, or nebulous, or even not clearly trustworthy, but by trusting in it and believing in it, you add a sense of surety or confidence to it and your life. So it means to claim surety or conviction about something that is not completely seen. You don't have all the facts, you don't know everything, but in order to get somewhere with what you're trying to do, you gotta trust, you gotta believe. And my point is, is that I think you and I do this all day long, we exercise faith, and don't even realize what we're doing. I go back to my uh, car analogy. Uh, Can you imagine uh, inventing a metal contraption and then attaching 20 gallons of flammable liquid to this metal contraption and then getting into this metal contraption and traveling 10 times faster than your God-given legs could ever carry you and saying that you trust it, that you're gonna be safe. Can you imagine doing something insane like that? Well, you all do it every day. You probably did it today to get here to church. You trusted in a car. But if an alien came to our planet and looked at what you do every day without thinking about it, you know what they would say? Man, you got a lot of faith. You really trust in that thing uh, to carry you from point A to point B and not kill you in the process. And my point is, we exercise faith like that all day long. Think about it. We trust in the weatherman, the economy, the mail system, the education system, our friends, our family, our church, our insurance companies, our retirement vehicles, the doctors who treat us, the hospitals that make us well. Even the most simple activities that you do every day, I would submit, take at least a little bit of faith. I've given this illustration before, and I always hope the stool doesn't break, but it takes faith because it would ruin the illustration for me to sit in this stool, right? It does. I mean, every time I sit in this stool, I, 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 I have a little bit of trust. It doesn't take a lot of faith, uh, but I have trust that it's going to hold me up. But I'm not positive about that, am I? I, I, mean, I mean, it's not blind faith. I got some surety that it's going to hold me based on past experience. But think about all the things that you do all day long. They require at least a little bit of faith. And generally speaking, that's what faith is. It simply involves a person, you and me, looking to someone or something and trusting and resting and believing in it. Now, that's faith in general. But what about spiritual faith? What about the Christian worldview? What about what happens when we bring God into the equation? How do we define faith then? I want to give you a working definition now that builds upon the general definition we just established, but will begin to get us closer to our main point and what God really cares about. So here would be a good spiritual definition of faith. 
And that is that spiritual faith, when we bring God into the equation, is believing in who God is and that all of what he has said is true. Give me a head now that you all would agree that this, if God exists, and if he actually speaks and acts, this would be a good definition of spiritual faith. It would be believing in who he is and that all of what he has said is true. If you don't believe me, look at how the Bible will go on to declare just this. Six, five verses after the verse in Hebrews 11 we just looked at, it finally brings God into the equation. And in continuing the discussion of faith, look at what it says. It says, and without faith... It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So simply notice here, guys, that in a uniquely spiritual and Christian sense, faith believes that God exists and that he is very personal, having a personality that responds to us when we reach out to him. It's very clear there that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So God is not some blind force, you know, may the force be with you or something like that. No, God is personal and he exists. And anybody that comes to him must believe that about him and believe that he is this way. And in the context here, this is very important for you all to see, in the context of Hebrews, in the context of the Bible, this is not the same thing as affirming that a God exists, but in the context of the Bible, it's affirming that the God exists, God with a capital G. So this is the Old Testament God, Yahweh, Jehovah, El Shaddai, Elohim, have you ever wondered why God has so many names in the Old Testament? It's because he's showing us aspects of his personality, of his actions, of how he rewards those who earnestly seek him, of his character and of his holiness, even his grace. And then you get to the New Testament. And it says that God is called Father and Jesus and Spirit, the Holy Trinity, three persons, one God, again, showing us the different personalities of God. And so this is biblical faith. Let's add this all up together right now. The right person, you and I, when we understand what faith is and when we're willing to submit our lives, even repent and turn, then focused on the right object, who is that? God himself as he has revealed himself in history and through the scriptures. And once you begin to understand this, once any of this starts to make sense to you, the right person, right object, that right object is God as he's revealed himself, now maybe you get why we are so rabid and focused on Jesus as Christians. I've told you guys this before, but I, I think one of the most honest questions a seeker would ask you and I when it comes to their seeking is, why are you guys so nuts about Jesus? I remember jogging years ago with one of my best friends from Chagrin Falls, Bill, and Bill was a seeker at that time, I think maybe still is, and we were jogging, and, and, and he said to me, he said, look, let me just level with you. He said, like, 98% of us are believers in God, so we got no problem with you there. But when you bring Jesus into the equation with the weight that you do, it just rains on our parade. Why do you do that? And I thought that was a very honest question. I mean, let's face it, if we didn't get so nuts about Jesus, if we didn't insist on Jesus, it would make things a lot easier in this world of ours, amen? 
It would. Because lots of people believe in God. Lots of people believe loosely and liberally in God as they want to think of him. But as soon as you get down to Jesus, tell me this isn't true. The conversation gets awkward kind of quickly. Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, <laughs> says that the most awkward question he's ever asked on an airplane is, do you want to talk about Jesus? His answer is, no, I'd rather not. Leave me alone. And I get that. I mean, I sit there and go, I can relate to that. And so my opening line with people on the plane is not, do you want to talk about Jesus? Because that's a conversation stopper. Our world needs an answer as to why Jesus is so important to us. And we're nudging up against the answer right now, guys, that if faith truly is, from a biblical standpoint, the right person trusting in the right object, then now we can give an intelligent answer as to why Jesus, because here it is, foreshadowed all over the Old Testament and revealed explicitly in the New Testament, Jesus becomes the object of our faith precisely because he is the right object whom God has provided, whom the Father has sent to do something for us we could never do for ourselves and become the sole source of our hope and the person we need to place our trust in. If you don't believe me, look at how, again, the book of Hebrews, as it starts in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, would set this up. I love the logic laid out here. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways. Pause right there. That's referring to the Old Testament, right? So it's saying that in the Old Testament, God spoke, he acted, he did things, and he did it through Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the minor prophets. God spoke through the prophets in many times and in various ways. Verse 2, but in these last days, pause right there. What's the last days? Well, the Bible says that the last days began with the first coming of Jesus and they will end with the second coming of Jesus, which, by the way, has not happened yet. So even 2,000 years later, we are living in what the Bible calls the last days, and it says in these last days, now this is wild, he has spoken to us by his son. And again, you go, why? Why is God so concerned about that? Here it is. Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Next verse. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I know it's a lot of theology today, gang, but just bear with me. I'll tell you a fun story in about four minutes. But let me explain this passage to you because it's really important we understand this. Notice that it's saying three things. We already noticed the first thing, that God has spoken throughout all of history and that before the time of Jesus, he spoke in various ways through various people. But then secondly, it says in these last days, the days we're in right now, God has clearly chosen to come to us and speak to us in Jesus. He couldn't be more clear. He has spoken to us through his son. God has chosen to reveal himself and speak to us through Jesus. For our purposes today, he is the right object of our faith. And again, you might say, well, why? Why did God choose to do that? There's an answer here, and it's the third thing, and I know of no other way to clearly say it than this. Jesus is God. That clear enough for you? Jesus is God. John said it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus came to this earth, and he said before Abraham was, I am. 
meaning that he preexisted Abraham, and he's using Exodus 3 where God said, I am who I am, to put himself on par with God. The Pharisees knew that, the religious leaders of Jesus' days, and like half the, in Jesus' day, and like half the time that he spoke, they picked up stones, not to give him a gift, to kill him, because he was blaspheming in their presence, saying that I am God. And that's what this passage clearly says. Again, I've done this for years, but you know, when it says that Jesus is the heir of all things, through whom the universe was made, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being, sustaining everything by his powerful word, doesn't sound like they're describing an average human being, if you ask me. I mean, there's a lot of holy men out there today and throughout history, but hardly ever will you find a description of a holy man with that language. That's language that we use to describe God. So God came to this planet, as Isaiah would prophesy, God with us. And then here's the real key. Go back to our passage here if we could, just the, the second slide from that passage, verse 3. It says that Jesus provided purification for sins. And this is the answer I gave my friend Bill years ago when we were jogging. I said, Bill, here's the reason that we're so rabid about Jesus. And, I, and again, I, I just have to speak plainly is that if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be bound for hell for all of eternity. Because the Bible says I'm born in a state of fallenness, a state of sinfulness, a state of separation from God. And boy, I felt that one from an early age. How about you? <laughs> and the Bible says that if something wasn't done about that, I'm facing an eternity without God. And I, and I don't even want to think like that. And so the Bible says Jesus came to this earth, God came to this earth, and he died on a cross. And watch this, when he died, he took all of my sin upon himself. Let that settle in a minute, all of your sin. Past, present, and say it with me, future. So that means that when Jesus died, because he died 2,000 years before any of you were born, he, he, he looked ahead in time. How could he do that? Because he was God. He looked ahead in time, and he knew every sin that you would commit. Think about that, every sin. Marlene, he knows everything you're going to do from this point on, everything. And he said, I'm going to die for that. I'm going to take the weight of this world's sin upon myself and give my life for that. And the Father agreed, and Jesus atoned, that's the word the Bible uses, for our sin. And maybe now you can see why God then says, and God's not being like, God's not being like raining our parade here, as my friend suggests. God just says, hey, by the way, if you want to place your faith anywhere, <laughs> place it in Jesus. That's why. And so biblical faith is truly about the right person, trusting in the right object. It's you when you are humble and open and repentant and focused, now taking all of that and putting it on God as he has revealed himself primarily in Jesus Christ. And the reason that this is so important for you and I to continue to cement in our lives is because here it is, this is vastly different from how our modern day world uses the word faith. You know, as I said earlier, I, I hear people all the time, celebrities, politicians, my neighbors, my friends, uh, say and use the word faith. I mean, it's a badge of honor, isn't it, today? I mean, we hear people say, you know, I'm a person of faith. Are you a person of faith? Well, you just got to have faith. I mean, I hear people say that all the time. And again, I never do this because it would just be awkward and rude, but I want to pause people when I hear them say that and say precisely what or who is your faith in? Have you guys ever wondered that? Because I don't think the answer is the same as what the Bible is suggesting today. 
In fact, I thought about it this week. And again, don't take this list to your neighbor. This is just for you and I. But I thought, you know, when, when your neighbor says that I got faith, I, I'll bet you dimes to dollars if they're not a church-going Christian type of person. They mean one of five things here. They either mean that they have faith in fate, faith in optimism, faith in self, faith in the world or culture, or faith even in religion. I'm telling you, you listen closely, this is what they mean. First, consider faith and faith. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. I think to myself when I hear people say that, either they're an awfully convinced five-point Calvinist or they're having faith in fate. I think that's what most people mean by that. They don't know why things happen, but, you know, there's got to be something behind this universe, and i got to believe something's going on there, and so there must be a reason for everything. And again, I, don't get me wrong, I'm not judging that. I, I get that. I used to think like that as well. I mean, I was never an atheist in my life. I always thought that things happened for a reason. It's just that when my eyes were finally opened to the personality behind God, to understanding who he really is and what he's about and what he's done for me at Christ and how he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I, I no longer say, well, gee, everything happens for a reason. Because my faith is not in fate. It's in the personal God of the universe who loves me and gave himself for me. And then, look closely, I think some people just mean faith and optimism. This is a, almost a solely Western, European, American, Canadian thing. How many times have you ever heard somebody say this? You know, well, don't worry, it'll all turn out for the best. I, I got to tell you, I, I know I'm passionate today, but I, I hate it when people say that. One of the reasons I hate it is because it just gives our, our Western mindset away. Can you imagine going to the sedan and looking at some kid who's, say, five years old that's never had a meal for a good meal for all of their lives and trying to minister to that kid and say, hey, don't, don't worry, it'll all turn out for the best. Can you imagine saying something stupid and insane like that? I mean, only a culture that has a strong economy and a first world kind of lifestyle could ever even hope that something will turn out for the best. This is a fallen world. Things do not always turn out for the best. Can we be realistic about that? And even in America, we go through problems and difficulties in which things are not always going to turn out for the best. If you don't believe me, visit Mayo Hospital today and walk into any hospital room and just say, well, don't worry, things will turn out for the best. It might not. They might be dead in 24 hours. We don't know. Now, if they're Christians and they meet Jesus, then did things turn out for the best? Yes or no? Yeah. But see, now we're getting somewhere. That's because they had faith in Jesus, not because they had faith in optimism. Amen? That's why. And then again, I, 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 I think a lot of people, when they use the word faith, really do mean self. This one really takes the cake. Again, people even say this to me as a minister. They say, well, Jamie, you know, I'm going through rough times. I'll say, just have faith that you can get through this. Boy, you're strong, pastor. Just have faith. What are they saying there? They're saying I should have faith in me. I go, really? What are you smoking? I know me. And I don't want to have faith in me. I mean, me, that's how I got in this mess, most likely, was because of me. And I'd rather focus my faith up to the right object. It's not about faith in self. How about this one, faith in world and culture? Again, you've heard these. These are all sayings we hear. People say, well, you know what? You just got to believe in the goodness of others. Again, I don't say these things to people personally because they never want to be around me. But when, people, when I hear someone say that, I think, really? You got to have faith in the goodness of others. I have faith in, faith in the fallenness of others. How about you? I mean, my dear wife was here last night. I love Kim with everything in me. In fact, I told her this week with tears in my eyes, I, I know I shouldn't think like this, but as we're getting older, I can't even imagine 
living life without this woman. I mean, she is the apple of my eye, the queen of my life. I, I love her with everything in me. And, and yet I said last night to the, to the six, five o'clock service, I said, you know what? Do we all understand at the end of the day, my, my, my eternal faith is not in that woman. I love her. I have faith in her. But my eternity does not hinge on me trusting Kim. <laughs> my eternity hinges on me trusting God. And very rarely do I put too much faith in this world or culture. How about faith in religion? And simply, I mean God as you want him to be. I hear people say, well, I want this. I believe this about God. I believe that about God. And I think, well, I don't know where you got that. My guess is is from some distorted religious view, but that's not who God is. And, And you see, my point is the object of our faith matters. And the reason that I don't want you to take this list, now watch this. The reason I don't want you to take this list to your neighbor is because I developed this list for you. My fear is not necessarily that the celebrities in Hollywood believe all this, because I think they do believe all this, and, 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 and I'm pretty sure this is what many of them mean by faith. My deeper fear is that some of you believe this garbage. My deeper fear is that some of you are so immersed in the world, you're so immersed in the things of this world, that when you hear the word faith, you immediately think, well, everything's going to turn out for the best, or, you know, you just got to believe, and you got to trust, and I sit there and go, yeah, but trust in who? Trust in what? Because deep down, I really hope that you know the Bible, and that you know who God is, that you know what he's like, that you call him the right names, and that you trust him for who he really is, and not for any of the garbage of this world, and the things that they try to sell you. Years ago, I had a funny thing happen to me. I was uh, pastoring in Canada, uh, and uh, just a three-year stint there. That wasn't the funny part, but I was pastoring in Canada, and uh, it was a 108-year-old Baptist church. It was my first try at being a senior pastor. I was very, very green, and this was a hard church to break into because these people have been together for a very, very long time, and yet they were very loving and open to this young American coming to pastor them, and I, I tried to listen a lot when I first went there to understand the people that I was going to be serving. I remember this one older couple, their names were Doug and Gertrude, and uh, they called her Gertie, and uh, they were pillars in the church. I mean, very refined, sophisticated, full of faith Canadian people, and uh, rather quiet, but you could just tell stalwarts of that church for years. And I don't know how I heard this, but within the first few months, I, I heard that Doug had a fond nickname for Gertie. He called her Butch. Now, before I go any further with that, that I don't think to a refined Canadian back in the late 90s that the word butch meant what some of you think it might mean today. I, I think that, I don't know, she had short hair or maybe he was in the military. I don't know what it was, but, but he called her butch and, and everybody knew it. It was very much a, an endearing thing. They'd be at a party and Doug would look at Gertie and say, okay, butch, time to go. And, and, and they'd go. And they, they had great kids and grandkids, great grandkids, and they were, were known throughout the church. I'd only been there a few months, and I knew this, and I had hardly ever talked to this couple, but one day I noticed that Gertie was waiting after church to talk to me, and so when the line died down a little bit, Gertie came up to me, and without even thinking about it, I looked at her, and I said this. I said, hey, what's up, Butch? And I could tell the second that I called her that, that that was not the right thing to say. The look on her face, I wish you could see it. I can still see it in my mind's eye. It was one initially of astonishment, then horror, then anger within about one nanosecond. And the message that she sent me is that you are the wrong person using the wrong name and you better get it right. 
And so I looked at her and I said, I am so sorry, I meant Mrs. Fields. <laughs> and she forgave me, she had to, she was a Christian, and we were able to, to talk a little bit there. See, here's what happened that day that I fear happens to some, if not many of us. I think many of us today try to convince ourselves that our faith is strong and solid, and it very well might be, but there might be a couple of problems we want to look at. I, I wonder if we're the right people. I wonder if we really understand what faith is, which is why we're defining it so clearly today. I also, under, I don't, also want to make sure we understand that part of being the right person means a humble heart, a, a focused mind, a repentant heart. As you turn, that's what the word repentance means, turn toward the right object. And that's my second fear. Is are we focused on the right object, even as Christians? Because some of you are, have been around for a long time, and, and I wonder, do you really understand the God that you believe in? Do you read his word? Do you know his word? Do you, do you understand what he is like? Could you describe him and all of his characteristics to a good friend? Do you understand what it means when it says he rewards those who earnestly seek him? Does that mean anything to you? Because if not, here's my point, then you're just like me calling dear old Gertie Butch. You're the wrong person, using the wrong name. And God would rather have you understand who he is and what he is about. Because as we start this series, and this, we're going to end with this and go to the communion table, as we start this series, here's what you need to know. You've got to cement the faith issue before you look at these seven other things. Well, how do we know that? Because it says, make sure to supplement your faith with virtue. And then virtue with knowledge. And then knowledge with self-control. And then self-control, it goes on and on and tells us to add brick by brick these things. And the order, as we're gonna see, is important. And faith, as I started out saying, really is the engine of your spiritual car. And if you don't have an engine, you're not going anywhere. And so here's your take-home point, and with this we're done. And that is that biblical faith, the reason it's so important that you're the right person with the right object is because that kind of faith unleashes the power of God in your life. You know, this is really for another sermon, but we have maybe 10 minutes before we need to go to the communion table. And I, I, I got to tell you, uh, when you look closely at what the Bible says, it is amazing. Now, don't miss this. What God does in response to the right person with the right object. I, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, one of the things we've already looked at, I mean, it's through faith that we receive complete forgiveness of all of our sin and a spot in heaven for all of eternity. And again, I know how some church people think. You guys are thinking, yeah, 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 I know that. What else is there? My gosh, don't think like that. I mean, Andre Crouch years ago sang a song. I'm dating myself. But he said, if heaven was all that was ever guaranteed us, it would be enough. Amen? Amen. And the problem is, is that again, like my 2015 Ford Mustang GT with the performance package, when you look under the hood, it's just so stinking complicated, right? We've added so much to our lives. We've added this and all this complexity and we're focused on this and we got our hobbies and our 401k and our retirement and, and kids and multiple marriages and all these things that are going on in our lives, some of which is sinful, some of which is not. But the reality is we have so much that honestly, how much time do we really spend understanding what the core of our faith is about? And that is the complete forgiveness of all of our sin and eternity with God forever. 
And the Bible tells us to think about that stuff every day, all day. I don't know about you, again, I'm not trying to sound more holy than you. I'm really not. I don't think I am. But for some reason, God won't let me get away from this one. I wake up every day, almost every day, and, and I really don't think, gee, I'm a, I'm a bigwig pastor of a megachurch. I just don't think like that, which is maybe why I'm so unusual to be your pastor. I wake up every day, and the very first thought I think of is God, and then I just thank him for saving my pathetic soul and forgiving me for everything I dreamt of over the night. I do. I thank him for forgiving me for every thought that I've had, every emotion that I have. Because again, I don't know about you, but when I audit my daily life, I'm still a mess. I'm better than most of you, but I'm a mess. <laughs> and I mean that sincerely. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying I get with you and I think, okay, I'm not as much of a mess as I think, but I am a mess. And, and I have terrible feelings and terrible thoughts and I can get angry and a whip and I got all these issues and, 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 I, and, I'm, and I'm confronted with those things. And at the end of the day, I try to change it. I've been at this, I changed this, I've been at this for 35 years. I am growing, thank God. But you know what I thank God for at the end of every day? Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that the blood of Jesus is covered over my sin. Thank you, as Jeremiah says, that tomorrow morning when I wake up, his mercies are new every morning. See, that's meaningful to me. How about you? And the only reason that I can thank God for that is because my faith is rightly placed upon him and his son. And there's power in that. There's purpose in that. And then notice a, a second thing. And again, this is really for another sermon. We have no time for this one today. But a, a second thing that faith does is that it unleashes God's activity in our lives. <laughs> It's what it means in Hebrews 11, 6, when it says he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And again, many of us don't believe this stuff, and we need to repent of this. Have you ever read the Bible? I mean, the Bible is full of, of stories. This is what God has done in the Bible and down through the ages uh, in response to people who trust him. He, he heals diseases. He helps people overcome insurmountable odds. People have been freed from prison, vindicated from unrighteous accusations. They've experienced the love of God in their hearts. They've found purpose in their lives. They've discovered truth about this world and even the next. They found healing for failed marriages, comfort in the most terrible situations. I, I think all the stories you know. And let me ask you, honestly, gang, just be honest with yourself. Are those things real? Or are they pipe dreams written 2,000 years ago that you barely believe? See, our world says it's wishful thinking. Freud says you're just messed up and you hope for something better, but it's not real. I think Freud is the one who was out to lunch. I think the reality is, is that God is real. He exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. But you got to believe, you got to trust, and you got to laser beam that faith upon him. And when you do that, you will stop whining about why he feels so distant. Because when you truly trust him, when you place your faith on him, and, and I know I'm talking a big game, but I believe this, gang, he draws close to you. He says that. He says, I will draw close to the humble. I give grace to the needy. And he's good for it. Because when you trust him, he will draw close to you relationally. And I've experienced that. How about you? And then finally, and with this we're done, faith makes us better people. And again, I know that makes some of us squirm under, under the collar. We get a little bit hot, but it's true. I mean, Christians are not more holier than thou. That would be a terrible attitude. But do you understand we are supposed to be just a bit more righteous than the zaniness of the world around us? And a part of the sign of that righteousness is humility. So we don't put it in their face, but, face, but if, you, if you are exercising faith, you're going to become a better person. 
Again, I love how Hebrews 11 will go on to say it, last verse, and then we're done. Right after it defines spiritual faith for us in verse 6, then in verses 7 through the end of the chapter, you've got to read it sometime on your own. It just goes nuts with all these Old Testament stories about how God's power is unleashed in response to faith. And it begins with this. It says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, like a coming flood, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his, say this word with me, faith. Say it again. Faith. One more time. Faith. He condemned the world. In other words, he showed all those people who were laughing at him to be wrong and became an heir. Now here it is. Of the righteousness that comes by faith. Bible experts will point out that this is not a righteousness that leads to faith. Many people think that they need to become more righteous and works oriented and then trust God because now he'll accept you. Bible doesn't know anything about that. It's saying that you can't do enough good works. Any righteousness that you have is going to come as a result of your faith. And Noah experienced that. He became more righteous as a result of trusting in God. And my simple question for you is, how about you? <laughs> is your life becoming more righteous? I remember years ago when I first got saved, when I was first a Christian, I was a freshman in college, and um, I've always had a temper. I'm not shy about that. I'm better. I'm better. But back then, I really had a temper. And um, I, I remember I just did a bunch of stupid things my freshman year, even as a brand-new Christian. I, I once got so mad that I smashed a tennis, rack, tennis racket against the wall and just broke it right in front of my roommate, who wasn't a believer. And, and I'd always feel bad about stupid things that I did. And, and I would go and confess them to my friends and say, you know what, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to be a good witness to you. And I, and I know I'm not a very good witness, but... I am sorry, and I'll never forget one day, one of the guys in my fraternity <laughs> said to me, he said, you know, I've noticed two things about you, Jamie. He says, one, whenever you mess up, and, and it is often, he says, but whenever you mess up, he said, uh, you always admit it, and you always seem to run to God, who well, I'm not even sure I believe in. He says, but you do. And, uh, and he says, and, I, and, and I've also noticed, however, that you are getting slowly better. I remember that like it was years ago. The guy's name was Phil when he said that to me. And I thought, well, I, I guess that's going to be my journey. And 35 years later, <laughs> I think I'd still say the same thing. I don't smash tennis rackets anymore. That would be unbecoming. But, but, but I can fall, and I struggle. And uh, when I do, how about you? I, I run to Jesus, and I confess it. And I say, I did it again. I'm so sorry. And, and then somehow, as time goes on, I am getting better. That Chuck Swindoll years ago called it three steps forward, two steps backward. And, and, and as long as it's not three steps backward and two steps forward, then I think we're on, on good ground. And, and that's what faith does. It makes us better people. The engine of the car of your life is faith. Don't ever forget, all it takes is being the right person who understands what all this is about, focused on the right object, Jesus, the lover of your soul. Neil's going to lead us in communion here, and the other pastors at the other campuses will lead us in communion. And uh, I'm going to stay here with you guys. I just want to enjoy communion for once with you. And uh, so I'm going to be served communion just like you. But let me pray, and then we'll hand it off to the other campuses and venues for their time and stay here for our time of, of communion. Father, thank you for your grace for us. Thank you that your grace knows no bounds, that it's given to the humble and to those who earnestly seek you. And God, I know many of the people here at Scottsdale Bible, they love you. 
Uh, they want to know truth and to seek you for who you are. And I pray, God, that as we are all in that boat together, that indeed, God, you would cement to us not just the nature of faith, a true humble trust in you, but also the object, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, with an emphasis, Lord, on the Redeemer of our souls, your Son, Christ. And so I pray, God, that as we celebrate this now at the communion table, that you might be pleased, that you might meet us in these elements. And Lord, give us a sense of your presence and your power. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, and we say together as a church,